This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me, and this is powered by Digital Media. Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi finds great people to invest in and backs them for life. Besides great rate loans, they offer career services and events for every member. Find out more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make awesome hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks. I am wearing the socks right now. Hunter, you've seen the socks. Can you vouch for them? They look pretty good. They look great. I can't really vouch for them unless they send me some. Um, you guys are going to have to talk to Hunter after this. They look great. Trust me. Don't trust Hunter. They're antimicrobial. You will smell good if you wear them. You can wear them to work. You can wear them to a podcast. You could wear them to a workout, but they're a little fancy for workout. I wouldn't wear them for workout. They look great. They are easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. You will love this product. I said you would. If for some reason you don't, you can keep them. No questions asked. Mac Weldon will send you your money back. Try it out. 20% off. Good for you. Good for me. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Hunter, we're going to do a test. What was I just promoting there? Socks. Good. Hey, Hunter. Is that, is that aided recall or unaided recall? I don't know. I'm not the marketing pro. You're a marketing pro. Uh, I've done some marketing. This is Hunter Walk. You are now a venture capitalist at Homebrew. It's true. We call you co-founder of, of that fund? Yeah. My partner, Sacha Patel, and I started it uh, beginning of 2013. So you're a relatively recent VC. Prior to that, you did a bunch of things. But I want to talk about the first job you had, because to me, it sounds like the most awesome job. What was your job? You were, you were, you were about Conan. shoveling snow and Long Island. Snow and yeah. Long Island. But at some point, you, you broke free of that, and you ended up in New York City working for Conan O'Brien. What did true. you do there? Yeah, my first startup uh, was the second season of Conan O'Brien. I was an undergrad up at Vassar, about 90 minutes north of the city. And uh, I had a public access cable TV show where the, uh, I think, unless you have a Freedom of Information like Act, World I, don't think, I think the tapes are, are buried unless you sort of can, can boil them. I really enjoyed it. I was sort of, uh, but I was also, you know, sports editor of the Vassar paper, which sounds oxymoronic in itself. But uh, I was like, boy, the minor leagues are fun. Let me try the majors. I had interned at NBC two summers prior over in like the business side and uh, called up and I said, hey, I've got a real offer for you. I want to work on Saturday Night Live uh, while I'm finishing up my, uh, my senior year of Vassar. I said, great, kid. And they said, great, here are your two choices. You got Donahue or this uh, cable access uh, quality show that's on at 1.30 in the morning called Conan O'Brien. And I picked that one. And, and what did you do at Conan? So I, uh, well, sometimes I stood on stage on a tape X because I was the intern that was closest in height to Conan. Oh, you were the other, you were a white guy tall enough to be Exa- Conan? Exactly. So if like, it was something like, oh, is this going to hit Conan in the head? You know, this prop or something? Uh-huh. Like, let's try it out on Hunter. But most of the time, uh, I was there three days a week and I researched uh, celebrity guests, wrote interview questions and worked with the segment producers to uh, get that stuff on air. I manufactured spontaneity. There are a lot of, that sounds great. There are a lot of people, um, I imagine listening to this in the media world who would think, Boy, if I had the chance to, to work on any TV show, let alone Conan O'Brien early in, in that career, early in my career, that is what I would do for life. Was your plan, I want to be in media and this is what I'm going to oh, do? Oh, that's now, like, I need to lay on a couch if we're going to answer yeah, yeah, this yeah. question. So I, um, my mother's artist, my father did business. Up until I started doing consumer tech, I thought I could only be left brain or right brain. I didn't realize that there were professions that you could be both. So yeah, I was trying out, you know, the idea of should I write for a living or something like that. And uh, ultimately, I decided I wanted to learn a little bit more about spreadsheets and went into management consulting. But uh, oh, so, but you wised up, right? I you, wised said, up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you said I'm going to make money instead of making I, myself happy. I, I, I wised up. And uh, there's definitely, that's the split in the career tree, right? Like the fact that I worked at Google, you know, instead of Facebook, whatever, they're all more similar than different in some ways. But not staying on Conan and not going down that path is sort of the biggest what if in my life. 
Do you have friends from that world? Do you, do you, do you... I don't have friends that I kept in touch with, but occasionally it was a really talented crew and occasionally I'll be watching something on, you know, streaming on Netflix or things like that. And in the credits, I'll see somebody I worked with. It's pretty cool. My boss actually, who ran research, ended up going on and being producer at The Ellen Show and The Rosie O'Donnell Show. So if I had just been smart enough to hitch my... Uh, Hitch my wagon to her horse. And look, it worked out okay. You ended up at Google. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm talking with you today, right? Yeah, things, <laughs> things have really worked out well for you. Hunter. B- bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should tell people this is the earliest we've recorded a podcast here. So, and, and you are on West Coast time. So, this is, well, I mean, you nod off midway through this. The fact thing, I'm here is a, is a technology miracle. Yeah. I mean, I was on a plane last night and you DM'd me. No, 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 no. We set this up weeks ago. Oh, weeks ago. Let's, yeah, let's maintain right. the fiction here. Okay. So again, I want to talk about Google and YouTube and what you're doing now. Um, you did mention Second Life and, mm-hmm. and Linden Labs. If you are old, if you're old enough to remember what things were like 10 years ago. 10 years ago? Uh, well, I started in 2000, 2001, so really it's like 15 years ago. Right, but the Second Life oh, the, sort of the excitement. Bu- the boom. Yeah, was yeah, 10 years ago, 2006. 2005. 2006. But we'll refresh your memory. Second Life was what? So the idea was at the time things like the Sims were popular, right? And the Sims was sort of this, you could be an avatar and run, yeah, run around sort of this other world. But it was all hard-coded. It was all um, the idea that, you know, you were playing in somebody else's world. It was a game you play on a PC. Yeah, the, yeah. like the Sims. And the, and the same time, people were also getting excited about chat room and community online. And so Second Life was really one of the first attempts to be sort of a fully immersive virtual environment um, where you, it was a, you know, played on a PC, you were an avatar, but everything was customizable. You could change the way you looked. You could build things using sort of like Lego-like constructions, write little scripts. They could do things. It's kind of um, like Minecraft is now in some ways. Yeah, right? it was like Minecraft, except with, you know, they wanted it to feel like a real world. Like, you know, oh, there's wind blowing and right. gravity. So some combination of sort of Minecraft plus a social network, and, and you would walk around in this, in this, they would have it graphically represent this thing. Right. You'd walk around. I'm not sure what else you would do. Well, that was exactly the biggest question, right? So it was sort of like Burning Man. You'd get dropped in this virtual desert and you know, need to, with the other people, figure out how to actually build a world. Of course, the punchline is now, like 15 years later, it's still this you know, profitable, ongoing company. Communities are hard to kill. People would build things, they'd throw events, but it was really sort of about just like finding your tribe. And there was a moment in time when this sort of broke through into the national consciousness, or at least business press consciousness, and this is a big deal and things are going to happen The 3D here. internet. And, and right, and there was, the, I think people were trying to figure out how they could make money here. They were buying up territory. There was even a peak where actual news organizations, Reuters sent a correspondent mm-hmm. into Second Life Embedded to work journalists. there full time. Yeah, so I mean, it had a full functioning economy with sort of a virtual credit system, Linden dollars, that you could exchange for real dollars. So the, the economy is actually still quite well functioning. What what sort of people got carried away with was the idea that, well, everything we do you know, on the internet or offline, we should put into this virtual world. So I remember, uh, and that of course meant brands and corporations started flooding right, in. I remember we got so Dell, frenzied. Do you remember that- Michael De- they built a replica of Michael Dell's college room, like you'd want to walk through that. <laughs> and sort of, you know, people would put out press releases, the first virtual insurance yeah. office, the first yeah. virtual, virtual this. And it got to the point, I remember I was at Forbes at the time where someone from the Forbes business side said, Peter, what do you think about Second Life? I, said, I don't know. What do you think? Should we do something like that? And I said, oh, do you guys want to like get a Forbes Island or a Forbes office. No, no, could we make our own second life? But Forbes would run it. I said, no, yeah. I know you can't do that. But so what happened there was, why did it not, you made a point of saying this is still a functioning business, but obviously it crested. Was it simply a matter of being too early or was yeah. there some other mistake? It was, well, I think it was never able to break through sort of that 
you know, million active users. Now, million active users turned into about a hundred million dollar business. It was, a, you know, those hardcore folks. You know, it's spend a, a lot freemium of model. You, if you freemium wanted. model. I think ultimately it was two things. Uh, the first was it was a bet that the early adopters could build a world that the average user would want to, you know, live in, know what to do, um, find, you know, fun. And that was just too hard. The early adopters were people who were really looking for experience that necessarily didn't translate to what uh, maybe you or me wanted. And it was PC-based in a world that, you know, has gone mobile. Um, right. But, but it, it crested prior to the iPhone and all that. It sort of came and yeah, went. Yeah, 06, 07. But then when you think about things that have, you know, sort of taken off since, I right. mean, they're, they're multi-platform. I mean, as you look now and you see Facebook trying to do a version of this with Oculus and VR and AR, and, and a lot of people are, are sort of tackling this idea yet again, mm -hmm. did you pull experiences from that that sort of inform how you, you assess those efforts now? Well, I think, you know, you pointed this out earlier when you said Minecraft. I think the biggest learning for me between something like Second Life and something like Minecraft is that spaces can feel very real without being photorealistic. So Minecraft doesn't look like the real world, but people have incredible fun and emotional attachment to that space. Second Life tried to be very, very immersive, and that was very difficult. Um, so when I think about VR design, you know, one of my you know, points of guidance to people would be, don't feel like you have to try to strive for making everything look exactly like it does in the real world in order to create you know, a simulation that people will want to be in. Figure out, you know, just like game designers have, figure out what other cues and things you can do to make people have a sense of sense of space without having to strive for something that looks exactly like the real world. And what do you think about the idea of sort of saying, all right, here's some rules and here's some guidelines and here's some basic sort of concepts about how things are going to work here. Here's some limits versus uh, I think what happened at, at Second Life and I think in Minecraft, right? You can pretty much do anything and you can sort of even go beyond the, the rules and sort of make modifications on your own if you're so inclined. On the one hand, it seems like the totally Wild West thing would scare normals. On the other hand, Minecraft is enormously popular and eight-year-olds play it. I think the largest successes and the largest failures will be the ones that don't provide those limits. It's just a, you know, much harder to make those worlds work, and there's great variability in outcome. But ultimately, that feeling of expansiveness and the this could be anything, I think, will be something that you know the largest winners in this space figure out. But most people who try that will end up failing. So you, you wrote an essay uh, about podcasts. You said podcasts shouldn't be free. We should sell them. This podcast is free. We mm -hmm. make money with, with advertisements, so we're going to do one of those right now, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, and mortgages. It's a simple process. They look at your financial potential, and if there's promise, they back you for life which means when you borrow with SoFi, you also get an awesome set of perks. There's career services, member happy hours, nationwide networking events, unemployment protection, and even an entrepreneur program. The idea is that SoFi succeeds when their members succeed, so they'll do all they can to help their members out. Learn more about what they can do at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's episode of Recode Media is also brought to you by FrameBridge. They're a cool Washington, D.C.-based startup that's disrupting the traditional framing market. Traditional framing stores are expensive. These guys are not. They also have cool workflow and technology that make it easy and affordable to custom frame the things you love. I've been telling you about the stuff I've been framing for, I don't know, 
month or so now. And look, I'll be honest with you, I don't have that much more wall space. I only have one house. So what I thought I'd do is ask you guys to tell me about the stuff that you're framing. You can reach me on Twitter. You can email me. Tell me what you're framing. Send me a picture if you want, testimonial. We will read one of these on the air very soon. In the meantime, I should tell you that FrameBridge can frame anything. They'll send you a mailing kit for your artwork, your posters, whatever you want to send them. They will frame it for you. They will send it back to you in days, fully ready to hang. You can even upload pictures from your phone all of that is cool, and it's not expensive. Pricing starts at just 39 bucks. The best part, it's not the best part. A really good part is that shipping is free, as it should be because it's the internet. It's 2016. They're giving a special offer to our listeners this month, which is also good. Visit framebridge.com, enter the offer code RECODE at checkout for 15% off your first FrameBridge order. That's framebridge.com. You get the special offer using the code RECODE. You get 15% off. Thank you, FrameBridge. That was a good. We, we good. just monetized this podcast. Yeah, that was a, that was a really nice segue. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, I just want, I want to ask you about that before I forget because we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff. You're you're a prolific writer. I think it's something you probably do normally, but it also mm-hmm. certainly helps you market yourself and your fund. Um, one of the pieces you wrote that caught my eye recently said we should stop calling the the podcast podcasts. But the real point was these things should be sold. Right. Well, to, almost all of them are free right now. Right. So I mean, the including this one. You're including welcome. Including this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the two points were I think that. In order for podcasts, really sort of, let's call it like non-music audio, to continue to grow and to allow folks who create this content to reinvest in their craft, we need to add a revenue stream besides sponsorship. And I usually believe the best revenue stream for content is users pay directly. And one of the challenges to doing that in in what we call today podcasts, I think, is the terminology itself. Uh, people have associated podcasts with free and podcasts with you know substitutable. There's lots of them. Um, and so it would be hard, I think, just to put a price tag on something that's called a podcast. But when you think about what are these things really, well, there's there's shows and there's seasons of shows, and you take something like Serial, which is a story you know told over you know many episodes. That doesn't seem that different to me than the types of things people pay for. What but they generally me, mm-hmm. don't pay. There's I mean, there's a subscription model for for bundles of content, right? Like Netflix. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine that sort of scenario working for for podcasts, or you think you subscribe to Serial because the microtransaction, right? The, right. The, I'm going to buy this show. I'm going to buy the. the I'd Peter like Goss to see. I mean, sell. I'd like to see both play out. I think the if you, you know people pitch me a lot, sort of the the Hulu of podcasts type of thing. I think if you were going to do that, what you need to start out with is a, enough capital to be able to build both a consumption app. You need to get out of the you know sort of iTunes world, but also to be able to pre-fund content. So that's not the type of business I think that you start with a million dollars. I think that's the type of business you start with thirty million dollars. You've been around businesses when they've in industries when they started off and they're relatively low stakes and people have a lot of freedom to create and that's one of the things I really like about podcasting right now is is this is a job for me. There's people here making money doing this, but it's pretty low stakes, right? The entire industry is like thirty six million dollars. Mm-hmm. Isn't that something you want to encourage? That sort of low stakes experimentation for a while. It doesn't sort of setting up a paywall and saying, all right, it's time to start paying. Oh, for sure. All this. Yeah, I don't. You know, look, slow it down. The Second Life, AdSense, and YouTube was essentially my operating career, right? I think all three of those were based on this notion that technology lowers the bar to creation. Creation is best done uh, within communities for both audience and collaboration. And for me, closing that loop is an economic system that allows creators, if they want to, to see dollars back from their creativity. Uh, YouTube would be a fundamentally different place if 10 years later it still insisted that the value you got was view count and not a check back from YouTube if you so desired. Right, so, but it's it's but it is fundamentally a free product. There's now a subscription product, but 
And an ad-supported, you know, right. an ad-supported, scalable ad-supported product as well. Right. All right. Well, I don't want to spend the entire time on this podcast talking about podcasts. Let's talk about Google. Sure. Um, I normally think of you as YouTube guy, but as you said, you worked on AdSense. How, how did you get to Google? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about Second Life. I was there for the first three years. We uh, launched the product, and you know, a few quarters after launch, it was clear that it was going to that this was something that was viable, but it wasn't clear the scale it would reach. And so, it seemed like a good time to think about doing something that would scale faster. I was interested at that time in the beginnings of social networking and started to talk to you know Mark Pincus, who had just been doing Tribe. Uh, met with Jonathan Abrams, who was doing Friendster. But this is I two thousand seven. No, no, no. This is two thousand three. Okay. Yeah, sort of second half of two thousand three. And uh, I had gone to grad school at Stanford, so I knew a bunch of people who were at Google, and they just started poking me. And they said, look, if you're leaving something that you're worried won't touch 50 million people, won't touch 500 million people, Second Life, this is a place where we're going to touch you know, billions of people. So you got to Google when? What year? 2003. And so it's pre-IPO, Google, right? Yeah, the, uh, the IPO'd August 04, I think uh, late, you know, sometime like summer 04. So it was pre-S1. So they didn't even, they hadn't filed yet. I didn't know, other people didn't know exactly what was going on there, but you heard rumors that it was a very good business. They hadn't yet released Gmail. That, of course, right. was sort of April Fool's Day 2004. They hadn't released Maps. It was still basically a search product with some ads. So Hunter, without doing the math, you did well. You got to Google before the IPO and you were there seven some years. Nine years. Good for you. Yeah, I Things never- worked out well, but you're still working. I'm, still, I'm definitely still working. I never, uh, I'm still working for a few reasons, <laughs> most of which involve that I enjoy what I do. Um, I also never did the, let me go get a competing offer from Facebook and go back and you know make them pay me more. I think Google was a great place to be and maybe the most amazing business model of the internet era. So you did well, but not generationally wealth well. So you just knew, you were in a circuit, you know, you went to Stanford, so you know people. Because even in 2003, dummies like me in New York knew that Google was a big thing and a hot company. Were there people clamoring for that job? Did you just step over them on the way in? Uh, well, I think I was probably atypical for the uh, the Google applicant at that time. They found me. I didn't find them. They sort of gave me three jobs that they thought I might be interested in over the course of two weeks. I spent nine out of 10 days talking to a bunch of people at Google. Um, Did you do those crazy uh, brain teasers? I didn't get, the interviews? I, I got I got some brain teasers. Actually, Salar, who later I worked for at YouTube, his brain teaser was, how would you estimate Google's revenue? And I turns out, in retrospect, I came up with a number that was very, very close. Yeah? So yeah, so I, they offered me, they offered How'd me- How'd you do it? Uh, it was, you know, I knew a little bit about advertising. They offered me two of the three jobs. And uh, I was worried it was 1,000 people. That seemed pretty big. I just come from a company that was 30 people. And I you know, attended board meetings at Second Life. I didn't think Larry and Sergey were going to want me at board meetings. And so I, uh, I was kind of just hemming and hawing, hemming and hawing. Finally, they said, look, like, you either have to tell us yes or like, we're going to assume no. And uh, my mom gave me the advice that it seemed like a good place. Good job, mom. Yeah, exactly. Good job, Mrs. Walk. So you, you do that for a few years, and then it's 2000... End of 2006, the six, they buy YouTube, YouTube acquisition closes. Uh, what do you think? Did, were you offering advice on that, or they just well, went know, ahead and spent $2 billion without consulting you? <laughs> I was not asked. But I was excited about YouTube as a product, and I'd been doing some video-related um, ad products at Google. And it's crazy to think about this now, but YouTube was like 18 months old when Google bought pretty, it. Pretty it, much. It seemed like old. a huge thing, but it also came out of nowhere. Google bought it 18 months almost old. right after that. Uh, and if, I mean, again... Now, you know, people look back and say, what an acquisition. But at the time, uh, you know, it was, you know, potentially illegal, right? There were all these lawsuits, Viacom and others that came later. There were questions about whether they'd ever make money. It was sort of dogs on skateboards. And it was phosphorus. So it was burning hot. But the sustainability of it, you know, nobody knew. But, it, you know, Google uh, bought it. And, and to Eric Schmidt's credit and Steve and Chad, 
they all said, look, we're going we're gonna to buy this, but we're going to let this team run. It's 18 months old. It's 65 people. If this is going to be great, and if it's going to be great over a long period of time, it needs to find its way using our resources. This isn't a question about just bringing it onto Mountain View and sticking it you know, under some Google VP. And so it ran on its own, in its own building, away from the main Googleplex. Exactly. And you volunteered and said, I, I want to go work with well, it. Well, you know, so Google, which was 1,000 people when I joined, had already grown to 12,000 people by the end of 2006. And the role of product management was changing a lot. And uh, it felt like a place that maybe I didn't necessarily have, a, have the type of future I wanted. So I was thinking about what I might do next, but wanted to really cared about the video products I was working on and wanted to try to transfer them over to the team at YouTube. So what was the problem? And I ended up transferring myself. What was the so when you go there in two thousand six, two thousand seven? I started sort of like January first, two thousand seven. When you go there, what is the problem you're trying to solve at YouTube in two thousand seven? Well, it's funny because the my first so I spent the first month working on syndication, which was essentially how do we make sure that these videos don't just play on YouTube but play everywhere. Then a smart engineer and a smart business development woman, Dweeple Desai and Kelly Lang, pitched me and Steve about maybe we should go all in on mobile. And so starting sort of February 2007, I started working on mobile as well. Pre-iPhone. Pre-iPhone. Pre, this, this was this when Palm Trio time. you picked out 10 to 20 videos a day and they went up on sort of a, a Verizon, you know, microsite on their deck, but it was pre-iPhone. And then by, I think, you know, the next month I was running all of YouTube's product. So all of a sudden, you know, I think about, well, what was, you know, your question was like, what was the problem we were trying to solve? My phase, the four and a half years that sort of I, I got to hold that role I think about taking everything that was working about YouTube and making it, you know, bigger and most importantly sustainable. So, uh, we grew playbacks from 100 million a day to more than 4 billion a day. Uh, we put in the rights management system and proved that everything YouTube was doing um, was perfectly legal. And we went from, you know, making no money to making a lot of money, not just for Google but for content creators. So, for a long time, from the outside, the, the questions about YouTube were: Can it make money? Is it legal? How is it going to work with the NBCs of the world and the Viacoms of the world and the music labels? And mm -hmm. I just wrote about that today. The music labels are still unhappy with them. And I think a lot of folks, well, obviously from the media world, were trying to figure out what YouTube meant for them and how mm -hmm. they could take advantage of it or, or pull their product back or make money, however it was. And then the fascinating thing to me was that over that same period of time. There was a culture of very young users who then went and said, we're making our own stuff here. We're making our own videos. We're making our own stars. We exist sort of independent of that main media world. And, you know, it took me years to sort of figure out what was going on. I went to VidCon one year oh, yeah. in, in Anaheim where, where I was told this was going to happen, but you actually do see sort of 12-year-old girls treating these 20-year-old YouTube stars like they're rock stars, because they are. How conscious was YouTube of that culture that was growing up? Because it seemed to me like it sort of really was organic, and there was nothing you guys did to encourage it. In fact, maybe you weren't even that comfortable with it. I'd say there was a core of people who were very excited about it. Folks who saw that, A, native content was more likely to beat you know, imported content, and B, that new voices could aggregate audiences very, very quickly. Um, that it wasn't a question about, well, this is nice, but this is minor leagues. As soon as we go license some content from NBC, we'll see, you know, we'll see the real numbers. You saw how quickly that these performers could aggregate audiences and not just for a 30 day period, a 60 day period, but for years on end. So I'd say it was a, uh, a burgeoning enthusiasm within YouTube corporate 
around this, but it took some proselytizing. And some of that proselytizing occurred internally. Um, some folks got frustrated and left and started businesses around this. George Snarpolis, who started uh, Full Screen, I think was one of the first people at, at YouTube to really believe so in this. So you got a thing here, but you don't quite know what it is. I'm going to go off. Yeah, he was it. part of a business development team, very smart business development team, but where maybe the focus was still on media companies. And he took it as far as he could. I remember, you know, you mentioned uh, VidCon. I had the chance to keynote maybe the second VidCon and brought George on stage and he announced partner grants, which was at the beginning, really just trying to give dollars $5,000 as sort of a cash advance to content creators who were limited not by their creativity or not by the time in the day, but by, you know, the max limit on their credit cards for the amount of content they can make. And then a few months later, uh, you know, George left and started full screen, which has, you know, been quite successful. So I, I was really excited to see YouTube alumni become part of that movement in addition to YouTube corporate getting the religion. So we'll skip ahead to the part where you leave, but I want to ask about that idea of, of sort of this native YouTube culture and, and digital media stars creating their own thing. People are trying to replicate that or talking about replicating that other places, uh, whether it's Facebook, which hasn't really got there yet. I think it's already happened on Snapchat. You've seen parts of it on Vine. If you say, look, I want to create a platform where people can do this. I want the next stars of tomorrow to use my system to create content. Is there a thing you can do to encourage them? So I would say that the most important thing that YouTube has done, that Vine hasn't done, that Instagram hasn't done, that Snapchat hasn't done yet, is figure out a way for people who want to create content on their platforms to make money directly along with the platform from that content. And make a have, video, put the video, you will get a check. Yep. Put the video on YouTube, we will pay you some exactly. amount of money. And that started with a smaller group of people. We couldn't open up to everybody at once, but we started with people who had had a track record on the platform. And this is where sort of the you know AdSense heritage in my few years working on AdSense as a product, which helped not just New York Times, but smaller websites monetized via contextual advertising, you know, it was a conviction that you couldn't just give these creators distribution. You had to give them a check. You had to give them a check. You had to build credibility for them and you had to help them collaborate. And so you have a lot of platforms today that I think serve as good distribution. They bring the people to the platform, but unless they're willing to make the economic commitment to figure out how to share the upside of the value of this content directly with the creators, I don't think they'll ever achieve the levels of success that YouTube has. So Facebook has basically unlimited resources, it's certainly equal resources with Google, more or less. If they wanted to write checks to a lot of people, they certainly could. They're, they're now pushing something called Facebook Live, and they're talking about writing very small checks to celebrities and also media companies like Vox Media. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they're not just jumping in and saying, look, we're going to make a platform, come on over, let's do it? Yeah, you know, maybe it's DNA. I mean, you know, Google's DNA early on with a lot of the idea of ads can be valuable and they can be adjacent to content, whether that be search results or your, you know, content on your website with something like AdSense, you know, made it perfectly natural to feel that you know, well, advertising can pair with video content on YouTube, and we can share the majority of that with content owners, just like we share the majority of AdSense revenue with site owners. You know, I've never worked for Facebook, um, so it seems pretty comfortable with advertising. They do seem pretty comfortable with advertising. You know, and maybe as they think about media in a different way, they will need to think about how do they share that other than just sort of you know upfront checks to sort of trial Facebook Live. Yeah, I mean, the rationale for handing out the very small checks right now, I guess they're small checks, I haven't seen them, to people like, I don't know, Reese Witherspoon or, or Jim Bankoff, who runs Vox Media, is we're going to figure this out eventually, so just stick with us. I think it's kind of funny because, at least on the media side, you don't need to actually give someone a check. You just say Facebook wants you to do it, mm -hmm. they'll do it. Right. So you had a nice long run at Google and YouTube. You leave to become a VC. You join the club of 
everyone else in Silicon Valley who has also become a VC. Right, I'm part of the problem. You're part, well, it, it seems like it's, at least until recently, it was very easy for anyone to hang up a shingle, go raise 20 or $30 million and say, I'm an investor now. So, you know, the last few years, I sort of joke, it's uh, never been easier to become a VC, but I think the next few years, it'll never be harder to stay one in the sense that the ability to raise a fund or the ability to invest one's own money into startups doesn't mean you're a sustainable venture capitalist. So you've been doing this for how long now? Three years. the VC part. So three years, you've raised one fund or you're on the second one? Uh, we're on a, we're five investments into our second fund, uh, which will be about a 25 investment fund. So you've done it long enough at least to convince yourself and, and your investors that you think you know what you're doing. <laughs> I have a three-year-old fund and a four-year-old daughter. They both seem to be growing at appropriate rates, but I won't know <laughs> what I have until they're 10. So what, leaving your daughter out of it, um, <laughs> what's the thing that surprised you the most about investing? Again, from afar, mm -hmm. looks pretty easy. People come to you, they pitch you your idea, you write them a check, you can be an asshole, you can be a good guy, either way, you sort of win. Yeah, well, you know, we pick a model where we make about eight to 10 investments a year at an early stage, and what we're really doing is we're usually the largest investor in the round. So we're signing up not just to put some money into hot deals and then tweet about the winners, although I do tweet about the winners. You're a good tweeter. Um, I'm a good tweeter. Um, but to try to actually wake up each morning and put sweat and reputation behind these teams. And so we're trying to pick folks where we think they're not only a good steward of our investors' funds, but that they're creating a you know, creating a product, creating a business, creating a future vision of the world that we can believe in. Uh, I think the thing that's been hardest for me is there are many more people I root for than I invest in. So if we see 200 new business plans a month, of which we invest in 0.8. Is, right? that, is that the number? You see yeah. 200 plans? Yeah. Um, so that takes some work. you got to read the plans, yeah, right? Or at it's, least it's, it. Oh, it's a lot of work. But you know, I come away from many more meetings believing that something has a chance and that it's, you know, has a chance of viability, but is it right for us and are we right for them? So, you know, there's still a lot uh, that goes into, you know, making that investment. There's a lot of work that occurs afterwards and the cycle time. I'm used to, you know, YouTube was such a big property that I could do a percent test of a new feature and get Im almost immediate feedback on whether you it was right or wrong. And put a something out and people try it do you out. Change, you know, do you want to change this word from, you know, free to win or do you want to change this color from red to blue and which one performs better and you get almost instant feedback and then you just make that change and apply it to everybody venture capital is almost completely the opposite there's no way to a b test come back in five years right so you know you need a patience and you need to be sort of in it for the long haul so um for us you know we we approach it like a product we're in year three of a 20-year roadmap um my partner and i had worked together at google we know each other for quite a while and ultimately we hope not just to be you know, successful, but we want to try to be impactful. We want to try to uh, to grow the pie, not just take our share of it. And uh, I mean, that's one reason why the firm's name is Homebrew. Although we get a, pitched a lot of uh, beer and alcohol spirits startups, uh, it's actually you know more about small batch and more about the Homebrew Computer Club of the 70s and 80s, where Steve Jobs met Steve Wozniak. It was a group of PC enthusiasts who hung out on Stanford's campus and, and built just for the heck of it. So you win points just for knowing that in the pitch. And I have a homebrew tattoo, which I haven't had to use to I've win a deal tattoo. yet, but it'll come out sooner or later. For years. Uh, just the, to clarify, yeah. the tattoo is on my shoulder. So I, she, I said, I've seen it. Yeah, I know, but you know, we didn't say where it was. I, nothing wrong with that. P Peter and I know each other for a while. A while. For years, bubble talk, bubble talk, bubble talk, bubble talk, bubble talk. It's still going on, but now the conversation is, oh, the, the bubble has already popped or things have turned and it's hard to raise money now if, if you're a startup and you haven't done X or Y. Are you seeing that? Do you see the same thing everyone else is seeing or, or do you have a different perspective? No, I'm an optimist. I think technology, when I started out in the Valley in 98 at grad school, technology was a vertical. 
it was, uh, you know, it moved independent from the business cycles. Technology is now everything, you know, sort of people famously say software eats the world, you know, I sort of more like to think software enables the world. And what you thus means is, you know, technology as an industry just moves with the business cycle. And it's true that, you know, 12, 18 months ago, there were a lot of glasses that looked half full and now are maybe are being seen half empty. Local marketplaces, on-demand services, things that are being judged through a different so lens. So the Uber for, or right, the, exactly. we're going to pay you to pay someone to yeah. do a product. We're not actually going to employ that person. Right. So there are business models that maybe were easier to fund, and now the winners are viable, and we're going to see how valuable they are. But there's a bunch of folks who didn't make it across the chasm. So there's less investment going on in that space, but those have been replaced by chatbots, by VR, by AI, other new areas that are being seen as glass half full and will play out. So I tend to believe that there at any given time, there's a handful of micro bubbles, some of which will produce incredible value, but concentrated amongst a few companies. And then uh, others of which are you know, deflating. Uh, and we just try as early stage investors to make sure that we're investing into the beginning of an innovation uh, phase and not into the back end of an innovation. This is a, a generally a podcast about media. Um, you've got a media background at YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've done one. We've done a couple different media investments. We've right? done the one skim, where we led. The on. skim was the, the one we led um, and have been involved for a while now. And then we've done a few where we've played more of a supporting role. Nuzzle uh, as a media aggregator, yep. uh, what your friends uh, share across Facebook and Twitter. Most recently, a company called Cheddar started by uh, John Steinberg. Yeah, I was surprised to see that one. So that's John Steinberg, who, who was at BuzzFeed mm-hmm. for a long time. Daily yeah. Mail for a minute, and his, his Shutter is the idea. Is he's been pitching it sort of a, a live millennial. Well, not CNBC. just not just pitching. He's got space on the New York Stock Exchange floor, and is starting to do it on Facebook Live, and will eventually be an over the top service. We know John from his days at Google, and uh, my partner Sachin. I just believe that he's a you know passionate entrepreneur who uh, has lived in media for the last few years and really understands where it's going, and wanted to get behind him as an investor. Because that one again from my very cheap seat seemed like oh that's a guy saying this is a product that should exist now that there's a product that there's a demand for right I don't, I don't know that the youngins want to watch live video about, well, you about know, finance. He's I think he's informed by you know uh, besides his work at BuzzFeed and Daily Mail. John's been on CNBC a lot over yeah, the last few years. He's very good at it. And so I think getting uh, a sense of what has been working and not working in that sort of environment gave him the intuition that there'd be an opportunity here. I think it's part of a broader uh, movement you see where a bunch of entrepreneurs are making the bet that if you look at the different cable channels that have worked, finance, home and garden, food, that there's going to be a next generation of services that aren't delivered by Comcast necessarily and aren't about 24-7 linear programming, but are about over-the-top live streaming, a mixture of uh, content voices. Tastemade is doing this yep. in the food space. Everyone's sort of picking out a cable channel and saying, I'm going to do that, but cheaper right. on the internet. Exactly. The cable channels were sort of taking, you know, essentially magazines and saying, we're going to turn these into video, right? And they were sort of looking at an evocative, where are their audiences already that care about this content right. that we can create new types of programming around? They also just claimed super valuable real estate, right? And just held it for a long time. Yeah, but I mean, you know, late 70s, early 80s, it was less clear, right? No, it was totally less clear, but that's the value there, right? The value of USA Network They benefited from scarcity. They benefited right. from shelf-based scarcity. Right, they're where, showing reruns of whatever, and, and ESPN was showing bull riding and right. log rolling. The flip side is maybe now there's not the same scarcity, but there's the unparalleled ability to aggregate audiences very quickly without having to pay gatekeepers in order to get distribution. And then you sort of have a countercurrent, right? We've got Snapchat saying, actually, we're going we're gonna to impose some order on this world. We're going to create our own platform. It's going to be walled in. Um, we control it. We're going to pick 
actually old-timey magazines, have them create product for us. It seems like they sort of want a counter-approach to the sort of like... Yeah, and I think, and you're talking about sort of the Discover channels, you know, I think that's evolving. For me, the most interesting part of Snapchat uh, video isn't necessarily those curated content creators under Discover, but it's the live stories, yeah, that seems the to be events the or the local, I mean, which are just amazing. And I think already you look at some of their sports live stories and... You know, if you're a sports fan, it's a must watch. And you, and you are on Snapchat. There's a little micro trend. A micro of, trend. Of, of you know, forty something white guys trying to figure out Snapchat. And, and, and you're a VC. Are you doing VC business? I'm on not Snapchat? doing VC business on Snapchat. I had been on Snapchat for a while, just privately, and under the idea, oh, well, this is a place where I can share things just amongst a small group. And I realized that what I was sharing may not be interesting to a large group, but there was certainly nothing private about it. And I've been really impressed with their pace of innovation. My friend Tom Conrad, who used to lead product at Pandora, just went down to Snapchat to lead product there. So a few months back, I flipped my bit from private to public and uh, every once in a while encourage people to follow me there. Yeah, at, I, don't, at, I don't know how I feel Hunter about Walk. I don't know how I feel about seeing people on Twitter promote their Snapchat. But it's, uh, I, I promise, thirsty, I promise you, so, yeah, it's very thirsty. I promise you, uh, you'll get more about what I'm listening to on the radio and uh, where I am at any given time. I, no Mark Suster snapstorms for me right now. Nothing wrong with Mark Suster no, snapstorms. I, I think everybody should use these platforms the way they want. One last question. I am listening to this podcast. I have an awesome idea for a company. I don't have any network. I'm not a Stanford guy in, in the Valley. How do I get to you? How do I get you to invest in my awesome idea? Yeah, well, so those are two separate questions. How you get to me is very, very easy. Hunter at homebrew.co. You know, our website is just www.homebrew.co. Um, I respond to every email that doesn't look like a form letter at least once. We've funded two of our 25 investments have come from people who emailed me. Over um, the transom. Cool, over cool. the transom. I'm a big believer that great ideas come from anywhere, and I don't want to be limited just to the people I worked with or people I know. How you get funding is uh, harder than sending me an email. I think ultimately what we want to see are people who we believe are working on solving problems that are three things. They're large, they're urgent, and they're valuable. And I want to see teams that have not just the not just the aptitude, not just the pedigree, the smarts to solve things, but have the attitude. I think you have to want to learn quickly and you want to be resilient and persistent. Um, I don't know how to program. I don't, I don't have a technical colleague. Can I write down my idea on a napkin or an email and send it to you? And is the idea alone enough to get funding? Usually not from us, given that we try to concentrate our investments on things that we think are going to be able to move quickly towards figuring out whether they're right or not. But if it's something you truly believe in and it's early stage, it's never. I don't think it's ever too early to tell me about what you want to do. It's just there's going to be a gap between telling me and me leaning in to want to learn more. Deal. Hunter, I told you this would be fun. Was it fun? It's fun. I do enjoy listening to you read ads, knowing how skeptical you are of most which, brands. Which makes my ad reads that much more compelling. It's right? authentic. It's, it's cranky Peter Kafka endorsing sucks. I'm going to ask Kara for Christmas. I want a private file that I can download from Dropbox. It's just a supercut of you reading all your sponsorships. Kara doesn't know the what a supercut is, but if you explain it to her, she, she might go for it. Hunter, thanks for doing this. Thanks for you guys for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I did conducting it, and I really did, you should subscribe over at iTunes. While you're there, you should leave us a review. If you like that, we have even more free, much to Hunter's chagrin, audio content over at iTunes. Uh, Carrie Swisher, who we were just talking about, has Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge has Too Embarrassed to Ask. There's Recode Replay, so you can see the very expensive conferences we put on. You can listen to that stuff for free. All easy to find. Go find it on iTunes. We'd also like to thank our sponsors. We were just talking about SoFi, Mac Weldon, and FrameBridge. Thanks to Digital Media, the company that handled the distribution and production for this thing, so you can listen to it for free. This is Recode Media. I'll be back next week with another great guest. See you then.